All right, this is Darker Days Radio coming at you with a great episode tonight. I'm one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by David. How's it going, David? Hello. Uh, yeah, nice to meet you all. Uh, good to be on a different show than uh, what I'm usually on. That's right, usually on the uh, Dark Hammer show, but uh, here we go. You're with us for yep. a regular Darker Days episode, and it's going to be a really uh, epic episode tonight. And joining us as well is Crystal. How's it going, Crystal? It is going very well. Yeah, you had quite an exciting weekend, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit in the news segment. And then also, of course, is Chig. How's it going, Chig? Tell you, if it was any better, there'd be two of me. Wow. All right. And we have two very special guests tonight. Uh, coming up first, we have Banana Chan. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you here. And we also have Sen Fung Lin. Hey there, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And uh, you are both uh, very well-known game designers uh, with a brand new game about to come out right now on Kickstarter, which is Zhang Shi Blood in the Banquet Hall, which we're going to be talking about tonight. So we're really excited about that. And uh, a number of our listeners have actually already been talking about this game. So uh, it's definitely pretty rad to have you here. Well, thank you. So we're going to skip our game update for tonight, and we're just going to dive into a very, very brief gaming news segment. All right, so I think the only gaming news we have is, of course, with Crystal. Crystal, you were at Gen Con Online this past weekend, and you did a couple of panels, right? I did a Researching History in RPGs panel, um, and I also did Horror on the Tabletop, which is uh, hosted by Chaosium. It seems like you had some pretty cool panels, which we are going to put some links to in the show notes, because I believe they are up on YouTube for everyone to see through Gen Con. Yes, I believe they are. And uh, Sen and Banana, were you involved at all with uh, Gen Con Online or any other virtual cons lately? Yep, definitely was part of Gen Con Online, so much so that I double booked a few of my panels, <laughs> one that Banana was the host for, so she did not, uh, she was not graced with my presence then, which is okay because we talk on a daily basis, so that was fine. I'm not um, mad. Yeah, she's not mad. The panel that I was on where I I wasn't on Banana's panel was uh, about creating a welcoming environment at the game table. Um, so that was a good one. And then I was part of a game show on Friday night uh, done by Bruce Vogue. And it was a interview and then 10 questions that were a, you know, an either or type of picking thing. And people would vote which ones they thought I picked. So I picked them in secret before, and then Bruce would ask the audience, and they would get to uh, win on a poll. So it's basically a polling system, and they would win a prize at the end, one of my latest games, which is uh, one of the Scooby-Doo mystery things for a an escape room in a box type of system that we built, which is odd, because Banana also worked on a different <laughs> Scooby-Doo game. I... Swear we did not tell each other about this. We both signed NDAs and we were both very good at keeping quiet until we both found out that we were working on two separate Scooby Doo games uh, that were released at the same around the same time. Oh my gosh, that's awesome! Banana, what was the uh, Scooby Doo game that you worked on? Uh, I worked on Scooby Doo Betrayal at Mystery Mansion with Rob Davio, Brian Neff, and Noah Cohen. Interesting. Is that a board game or something else? Yes, it's a board game. So it's uh, basically a reskin of the 
Betrayal at House on the Hill game where we just basically reskinned it to make it more kid-friendly and more accessible uh, and use the Scooby-Doo uh, theme for oh that. Oh my gosh, that's epic. That is <laughs> definitely really cool. So with that, we'll move on over to the main interview segment. Okay, uh, Crystal, do you want to uh, take this off with the first question? Yeah, so um, how did both of you get started with gaming in general? This happened a long, long time ago when I was in high school. I played a session of D&D &D and I did not have a good time because uh, I wanted to uh, sneak beers and not play, you know, a high fantasy game at the time. But later on down the road, uh, when I did get older and uh, discover games like Monster Hearts and, you know, all these other indie tabletop role-playing games, I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Like, I had no idea that TTRPGs could be, like, you know, themed this way. Like, I didn't know that you could have, like, other genres of role-playing games. So that's how I sort of you know, took the deep dive into role-playing games and uh, games in general. And then from there, I started writing uh, LARPs and all that fun stuff. Awesome. So for me, I was that precocious kid who ran out of things to do uh, at home really quickly, and my parents couldn't figure out what I should do. And so one day they decided, oh, he's read, you know, The Lord of the Rings all the way through three times at age six. Let's throw him in the basement of a university with 24-year-olds to play Dungeons and Dragons because they thought, oh, it sounds the same. <laughs> and so that's what I did. So 42 years later, here I am uh, still playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, and still writing games and stories and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's it's been a long time. Awesome. Yeah, it's definitely cool. And uh, Sen, did you did you mostly stick with D&D &D or did you branch out into a lot of different games? Just kind of curious what your RPG trajectory was. Well, my RPG trajectory was started with Chainmail uh, and then D&D &D, and then um, I like superheroes. So definitely champions and villains and vigilantes and uh, phase rip stuff for Marvel, uh, DC heroes, that kind of stuff. Um, but then... I think, you know, when I was in university, which was in the early 90s, we were playing Shadowrun a lot and Paranoia. And then I stopped uh, because I all of a sudden got really serious about school, um, basically because I was failing out of school. So it was like, you're going to fail out of school if you don't do something drastic. So I did something drastic, and that was cut role-playing out of my life, um, which was sad, but also necessary. So for about nine years, because I was in school for almost a decade, uh, I didn't role play much at all. I did, however, get into Magic the Gathering and Warhammer and all those other games that don't necessarily eat up as much as my, of my brain space, but definitely eat up a lot more money uh, and still eat up time. But I can at least put them away and not think about them as much as I did about role playing. Because role playing is this thing that kind of eats up my brain all the time and uh, really lives inside me. Um, and so how I got into game design was that my friend introduced me to German-styled gaming, which is what we called it at the time, like Euro games. And they scratched the itch for the gaming and the camaraderie that I was missing, but didn't have all the time that the role-playing games were costing me or the money that Warhammer and Magic the Gathering were costing me. 
So I sold all my magic cards, sold all my armies for Warhammer. And it's funny because I'm buying them all back again now that I have kids of my own. Um, and then I got into board gaming. And from that, I started designing. And it's only been within the last couple of years that I've started redesigning uh, role-playing systems, which was my first love. And I really, really enjoy them. So it's, it's, I'm very happy to be back in that creative space. Awesome. Uh, Banana, how did, how did you get started writing for games? You mentioned LARPs. Yeah, so uh, the first game I guess I wrote was uh, for the Golden Cobra Challenge, and that was uh, this short game uh, that I had written and drawn out. It was basically uh, the surrealist game called The Other Place, and then after that I wrote another game called uh, They're On To Me, which is like the solo vlogging game that I submitted again to Golden Cobra and uh, uh, I won an award for that. And then after that, it just sort of took off. Like I wrote for Kids on Bikes. Uh, you know, I'm friends with Doug Lewandowski. So uh, he was just like, hey, you want to write a thing? And I was like, sure, uh, as long as I can troll you. Um, so I wrote Dad on Mowers. And that's sort of how uh, he was just like, hey, yeah, you should keep uh, keep keep writing stuff for us. And I was like, I, I don't know what I did, but sure, like I'll keep writing stuff for you. So now we have this um, sort of like how John Carpenter has that like apocalypse trilogy. It's like a really silly apocalypse trilogy with like um, one of them is like snakes on an airplane or something like that. And then there was like this other one, uh, which is like doggos on skateboards. And then I think the third one is like grannies on scooters. So um, yeah, from there, it was just <laughs> sort of like uh, just spun out of uh, spun into this, like, you know, this thing where I just keep writing for other people and writing for uh, for big projects like this with Sun. All right, cool. Let me let me write that down. Grannies on scooters. That's something to check out. Yeah, I think some of it's going to be for uh, their free content Friday. So you could probably find it on their website. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so I think you've already kind of explained uh, a lot of your influences. Uh, but is there any any other like singular thing you want to uh, highlight as an influence with game design? Banana watches a lot of TV. You <laughs> listen to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> and that's it. That, that is our influence. We're all rolled into two forms okay. of <laughs> we can We consume a lot. We consume a lot. And that influences and forms what we think is really cool and interesting. Uh, we, we generally write about stuff that's not super fantastical. And then we make it fantastical. Yeah, that's really true. Um... I think a lot of the stuff that I'm into, it's like a combination of horror and comedy. Um, and Sen sometimes sends me podcasts uh, to listen to. And that's like another thing that's kind of cool. Um, so yeah, I feel like we consume a lot of stuff in general. When we met online, it's like, what's going on in that person's head was really my question. Literally, I think. Now that I think about it, uh, because I, I got introduced to Banana through her Golden Cobra award-winning game that she already mentioned. Um, and it was just like, I want to make games like that, but what is going on in that person's head, particularly because this is just a weird way of looking at the world, right? So that's... Thanks, then. <laughs> you're, you're totally welcome. <laughs> yeah, that, that was totally the next question was, how did the two of you start working together? 
Um, but maybe you guys could talk about some of the other projects that you have done together. I feel like we've done, uh, so we have this living Google Doc where we just throw ideas into uh, and we go back and forth. Uh, we talk almost like at this point, it's probably been every day now um, where we're just like chatting and we iterate on stuff. And, you know, sometimes when, you know, one of us gets an idea, we're just like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this happened? Or like, you know, if we did this thing and then we just, you know, talk it out or we throw it into the Google Doc. Um, and then if, you know, something sticks, then we just start working on one of the many things on the Google Doc. Yeah, there's a whole bunch on there right now. Um, there's definitely stuff that is already in the works in terms of getting signed or has been signed. Uh, there's projects that are just literally right before we had this meeting with you, somebody presented something that we're like, oh, that sounds interesting. And I'm just writing notes on that and putting that together. So our collaboration is is really this sort of bouncing stuff back and forth between each other um, because... I don't know if either of us knows what is cool, but we think each other knows what is cool. Do you know what I mean? And so we use each other as sounding boards to say, hey, do you think this is good? And they, the other person would say, yeah, that sounds awesome. And they say, okay, good, let's do that. I think that's, that's our relationship in a nutshell. Asking somebody if they like the hat that I'm wearing. Awesome. I mean, that's a good setup to have. Oh my gosh. All right, cool. So let's get on to uh, talking about your latest big project, which is uh, Zhang Shi, Blood and the Banquet Hall. Can you two tell us a little bit about it and introduce it to uh, our listeners? Sure. Uh, so uh, Zhang Shi, Blood and the Banquet Hall is a tabletop role-playing game where players take on the roles of a Chinese immigrant family uh, running a restaurant in the 1920s in uh, one of the Chinatowns that we've provided in the book. So um, the base game is taking place in uh, San Francisco, but you can choose like whichever Chinatown you want to play in. Uh, they're generally in Canada or the US. Um, so the players are serving customers faced with stress and oppression in the daytime, uh, while at night, Zhangshu, these hopping vampires come out and uh, the family has to try to defend themselves from this uh, paranormal entity. Yeah, and then at a at a mechanical level, that's kind of the, the broad overall theme. At a mechanical level, we're looking at interactions between a multi-generational family where members may not actually be able to communicate with each other well. And members that, because their family have strong relationships and ties, that they have hopes and dreams that involve each other. And the other thing we're looking at is placing the restaurant as almost a, another character in your family that helps to provide and sustain and helps you to realize those hopes and dreams in the end, but only if you take good care of it, right? So that's part of the, the mechanical nature of the game is that you have to take care of your restaurant if you hope to survive in the long run. Interesting. So, I mean, we're going to talk about the like dice rolling kind of game mechanics and the board game mechanics, but uh, in a future question, but how does that play out when you have the, uh, you mentioned multiple generations that might not be able to uh, communicate with each other very well. How does that kind of play out in your experience, uh, play testing this game and the like? Uh, so it's been pretty interesting. Uh, so one of the, the slots in this character sheet, so you have this character sheet that's sort of like a placemat, and uh, it has eight different slots. So it has your skills, your facets, your items, 
all of that stuff. It also has a language um, stat. So you can have up to three, three points per part of a language. So you have your listening uh, part of the language, you have your understanding, speaking, and writing. Um, and so the more points you have towards that language, the more you can understand it. Uh, so, you know, one character might have more towards their English versus another character might have more towards their dialect, which uh, in this case is Cantonese. And so uh, there is this sort of like weird barrier that sometimes, you know, family members have because, you know, one person might be explaining one thing and then the other person might be like, are you trying to say this thing? But I'm not sure if you're trying to say this thing, like, are we on the same page? Uh, or maybe not. And so that's why they would have to have like, you know, another person as like a, a bridge between the two sometimes. Uh, and in gameplay, it's actually like a lot of fun. Uh, just like seeing how people just, you know, don't know, they're just like stumbling in communication. And there's like, you know, this lost in translation type thing happening. Um, and it can get quite silly a lot of the time. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think that's like, what makes it fun. Yeah, a lot of the humor ensues from that. Yeah. And it also like feels, uh, or at least with the people that I've played with, they've mentioned that it, it hits home because, you know, sometimes they have issues trying to communicate with their grandparents. Um, and, you know, it, they have that language barrier. Mm -hmm. uh, and then where, where, where it usually comes into play more so is when your characters are speaking to NPCs um, that are not Chinese. So that's where the grandson or the granddaughter who might have been born in Canada or United States comes to the forefront as being that interpreter between, you know, maybe a grandmother who speaks very poor English but can't read or write any of it. And so they might have to do the reading for them when they get a letter from the government or something. So it's interesting. With this, you, um, you are playing Chinese characters, which I think is it's a really nice kind of different way to take the, the game. And you've actually inc included a kind of cool section which actually deals with um, explaining how you can play these characters um, sensitively and actually be be clever with them and, and, and play them properly. Would you want to elaborate more on kind of that section of the, the, the book? Yeah, so we, uh, we actually work together with uh, James Mendez Hodes who I, I like to say that when I write things, I get a little salty. So I feel like it's good to have a consultant or like a sensitivity reader just to, you know, tone down my saltiness sometimes. Um, so we hired him on and uh, we wrote this, uh, this section together. And basically we talked a bit about like, you know, the things that we encountered as, you know, as Chinese people in real life um, and trying to, you know, talk about like things that people can try to avoid uh, when playing a character that's not their own race. So we talked about, uh, and just to touch on it briefly, we talk about avoiding stereotypes um, and focusing more on like what makes the character that character uh, instead of, you know, focusing on like the, the one thing or the two things that they might be known for. Uh, instead of focusing on that, maybe think about like, you know, what other things are they interested in? Like, maybe they are, uh, you know, interested in becoming a writer. Maybe they're interested in like, you know, um, trying to quit the family business and like run off and start a jazz band or something like that. 
So things like that um, create for like more three-dimensional character creation as well, I think. Um, mm. And also like letting players know it's okay to, you know, mess up. We all mess up. We're just humans. Uh, so like, you know, if anything happens, making sure that you have your safety mechanics like available to everyone. So having that X card available, drawing your lines and veils, uh, you know, making sure that you're, uh, you're gentle with one another in terms of like course correcting is great uh, because you know at the end of the day like you know you you want to take care of yourself before you try to you know play this game like you're more important than the game yeah and I think the other things that are important are things like you know just don't use an accent <laughs> just just don't and stay away from tropes the the idea that you know everybody who's Asian knows a martial arts or are good at math or can't drive or any of those things that whether it's a positive or a negative stereotype, we just want people to avoid them and just think of them as, you know, their characters are just people. Um, they may know martial arts, but what does that mean in the mechanics? Not a heck of, not a heck of a lot, to be honest. Um, like any of the mechanics in the game, they're pretty fluid. The idea of, being a character of a different race or culture is is really important to not caricaturize them and to to use your use some empathy i think is is really the idea that we wanted to get across that most characters have like hopes and dreams and relationships that are outside of do i know martial arts or you know whatever other trope you might think of for, for somebody who is Chinese or of Asian descent. So, yeah, um, there are definitely some tropey things in there. They're like, we specifically place it inside of a restaurant, which is this sort of stereotype that, you know, all Chinese people own restaurants. And it's this one that there's a reason, there's a real, real reason for it. Why restaurant businesses are so popular amongst people from China who immigrated uh, early on in like American and Canadian history. Uh, some of it is legal because it's one of the only jobs uh, and properties that were allowed by the government to be owned by people from China. Uh, there's some bit of the idea that it's a woman's work to run a restaurant and therefore uh, having people who they didn't want to be seen as masculine, i.e. Chinese men, uh, were given jobs or allowed to own work, own property and do jobs that were seen as being feminine. Um, you know, so there's a lot to that. There's also, uh, because of how the laws were written at the time, uh, many, many people from China could invest in a restaurant. And if they were the owner of the restaurant or the manager of the restaurant, full-time for a full year, that was enough. Uh, so they would invest and they would rotate the managers. Uh, and then when they weren't the manager, they'd be working there. So it'd be, it's a really, it's a way for, it was a way for them to skirt some of the, the laws of immigration at the time that were uh, sexist and racist. So there you go. <laughs> That's the history of why some tropes are in the game and then also why some tropes shouldn't be. That's really cool. Um, Really looking forward to seeing seeing more of this now. So on that as well, so you said it's um, this game is actually based in 1920s kind of era of America and Canada um, when a lot of immigration is happening. So you've also 
specifically chosen the family members to come from uh i'm going to probably butcher this name so i do apologize guangdong province um yeah is there any particular reason why you've chosen the guangdong province yeah so a little bit of history uh in terms of where a lot of the chinese diaspora is from um in in terms of like the americas uh like in canada and the u.s most of the people who've immigrated here from China um, are from uh, Toisan, which is a, uh, a place in the Guangdong province and several other you know, places from the Guangdong province in general. Uh, Sen, you can speak on this uh, more if you want. Sure. So, uh, and that's why Cantonese is the predominant language that you'll hear not only in our game, but even in uh, you know, modern day Canada and United States, if you uh, meet a Chinese person, chances are, if they've been here for a long time, uh, they're of um, an origin where they spoke Cantonese. Whereas my family uh, speaks Mandarin, is from South, 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 as far as South China as you can get. And the Chinese diaspora from that area ended up more in Malaysia and Singapore and Brunei and Australia. Uh, and stuff like that. So it's it's actually quite interesting um, to follow the diaspora around. Like, so I, I have friends who know where I'm from just because of my last name, um, and they go, "Oh, your family was from here, and they went here, and now you're in Canada." It's like, how'd you know? Well, because and my friend who's a diplomat said, "Well, because when I worked in China, and so he could actually follow where the diaspora went based on." just last names and family lineages, because you want to be where people speak the language that you speak, right? And so that's usually what happened is, well, what would happen is one person would go over, say from Toisan, and would end up in, say, Calgary or Vancouver or LA or wherever they ended up. And then they would sponsor or try to bring over other family members to there. And then there'd be a community that would grow and they would all speak the same language. And so it would attract more people from that area because they knew they could communicate when they got there, right? So that's why uh, Guangdong province is the origin province for a lot of the characters, or at least the families in the game, uh, where some of the children may actually born, be born in North America. So, Yeah. And the funny thing is that even in the Guangdong province, there are several other dialects that are spoken. But, sure. um, you know, for the sake of trying to make everything a little, uh, for the sake of making this book a little shorter than um, <laughs> several thousand pages, um, we've chosen Cantonese for the default for this. Which is funny because Jiangshi is not really a Cantonese word, but okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're, we're all right with that. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's because we use Jiangshi and we pronounce it that particular way because of where the monster has become most popular was in the uh, mid 80s to early 90s in a series of movies called Mr. Vampire uh, that came out of Hong Kong uh, where they speak mostly Cantonese. But for some reason, um, Jiangshi was used as the, the term that floated around a lot more. So we're just going with what works. Fair enough. Yeah, that's it's really cool that you're kind of bringing into the game, the reality of how 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 the Chinese did move over to America and 
and expand and all the, the the relation with all the different provinces and where they went. That's really cool. It's interesting, actually. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the people who had contacted us um, and just had some comments about you know the the potential of racism and things like that. They're actually from the UK, uh, and they're from the, they're originally Chinese, moved to the UK, or family moved to the UK, and the UK the the mass immigration from uh, China and surrounding areas wasn't until the 1980s, whereas yeah. in Canada and the US, the mass immigration started in the 1880s. So there's a hundred years more of history of Chinese people in on mass anyways, in North yeah. America than there are in the British Isles. And that's really kind of interesting because they have a wholly different perspective of racism and things than myself and banana do and it was interesting talking to them about that and their concerns versus our concerns and so that was just interesting to, to note right for sure and it definitely does um highlight how different the chinese experience is um especially with you know the diaspora and also within you know the within the different regions of of china as well um it's not like this monolithic experience it is definitely like very different for everyone yeah just on, on that kind of note then as you as i am from england myself um um this game does does seem to be quite heavily based in america and canada would 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 you be looking at maybe in the future of expanding it out from um, um just the americas over to me. I would, I would love to see that. My family is uh, from, well, basically Malaysia and Brunei, uh, Borneo. So yeah, I would love to see other areas of the diaspora being explored um, and see what that looks like. I think it'd be fun. Yeah. In the game itself, we do have uh, a structure, like a template that GMs can edit around uh, if they wanted to change the the Chinatown that they're playing in to adjust it to their their own Chinatown. Yeah, we have lots of people writing adventures that aren't even from a Chinese perspective. Um, yeah. A bunch of the stretch goals. Uh, writing is coming from, say, like a Haitian perspective, the Japanese-American internment camp perspective. So the idea, the concept of multi-generational families and food and culture and oppression has really resonated with a lot of the people who have read and played the game. Uh, so much so that they're like, yeah, I want to write for that, but I don't know anything about China. And I was like, well, what do you know? Well, my family's from Haiti. Write about that. And they're like, yeah. So there's a lot of cool stuff coming that we don't even know what it looks like yet because we haven't really seen most of it. Um, we will obviously see it before it gets printed, but the but the fascinating thing about other cultures and their mythologies and how their families work and what their family structure is like, I think will be really super interesting, not only to see the differences, but more for me is to see the similarities. You know, what is that singular, similar immigrant experience that then is colored and shaded by wherever your family happens to hail from? and all those types of things. So I'm really looking forward to that. That all does sound just absolutely fascinating. Mechanically, how do you, how do you represent what's going on here? Uh, you, you've mentioned uh, placemat-style character sheets and cards, and what, what are the basic mechanics of the game? 
So the basic mechanics start with a depleting dice pool. Um, the dice are D8s, which are um, were picked for a very, very specific reason. Uh, so eight is a very, very lucky number in Chinese numerology. And four is a very, very unlucky number in Chinese numerology. Uh, why? Because the numbers sound the same as good words or bad words. And everything in, in Chinese is very much based on homonyms in terms of what's good luck or bad luck. Uh, and so four sounds like the word for death. And, and eight is uh, similar to eight. Yeah, which is... Yeah, and so um, those two numbers are very important in our dicing system. Uh, so it's a D8 because the max is a great number of eight, but fours in our dicing system will cancel out the highest number in the pool. So if you rolled like a four and an eight, you'd cancel out the eight, meaning that you'd be left with nothing. Uh, if you rolled a four, a six, and an eight, you'd cancel out the eight and you'd be left with a six. So the dice pool depletes over the course of the game or the campaign. Really, it's not a campaign game. It's more like a mini-series game, like five sessions maybe, right, um, for a longer adventure. The idea being that that represents that you're getting psychically more drained of your energy, which is what uh, Zhangshi do. They don't really suck your blood. They suck out your qi or your life force or your energy. And so when that's happening, you'll get pools of dice to roll for whatever you're doing. And you're able to affect your dice rolls by your skills, uh, your facets, or your ability, your skills. And then also your restaurant will help you do dice manipulation as well. So the board gamey elements that we put in there are sort of reverse of a board game, so like Scythe. Scythe has a player board where you, as you pull pieces off, you get more abilities. This is a reverse of that. So when you put cards on top of your player board or on top of your restaurant, you lose whatever abilities that just got covered, um, which is an interesting way of doing things. So you know how in D&D, you don't really get worse at doing stuff as you take more damage usually? Uh, it's like you can be at one hit point and you're fighting still as hard as you were when you were at full hit points. And not so with Jiangshe and Jiangshe. When you take damage, your dicing abilities go down the tubes quite quickly, actually. And then as your character takes on more and more damage or your restaurant becomes more and more decrepit, you'll actually lose the game in certain ways uh, where your restaurant basically becomes untenable and you know the city might condemn it or it, the people in the city no longer come no longer frequent it because they basically the location has been destroyed or you turn into a jiangshi yourself if you lose your hopes and dreams so it's pretty poignant that the last thing on your character to lose before you become an undead you know energy vampire is your hopes and dreams and there's a lot to that i i think in terms of what we're representing in the game. So to me, and and this, I've talked about this a lot in many interviews, that the Jiangshi aren't really like, I don't really care that they're Jiangshi other than I think Jiangshi are cool. But the idea for them is more like what I think of the zombies from, you know, something like The Walking Dead are like. They're this implacable force that is just going to keep coming. And in... Uh, Jiangsha, they represent uh, oppression and racism and all the things that were holding back our predecessors. <clears throat> and so as 
you lose faith in society as you lose your hopes and dreams you become an energy vampire yourself anything else banana um we also touch a little bit on spirit paper um oh yeah spirit paper are based on uh fulu or uh fu paper talismans um so you might be familiar with this uh in anime or any sort of other like pop culture thing where uh, you would see a, a priest stick like a like a piece of paper onto uh, a place to like sort of enchant it, um, and in you know Joshua movies you would see like these Taoist priests with these um, these paper paper talismans that they would stick onto the the Zhangshu's forehead and freeze them in place. So uh, these are like a, a real cultural thing where. Uh, where Taoist priests would use these pieces of paper to, like, you know, write spells or, like, write enchantments on them uh, and, you know, like, place them everywhere. It's like a part of esoteric Taoism. Um, so uh, in this game, we renamed them to call them spirit papers uh, just because, like, we didn't want to touch on, like, uh, Taoism too much because it's such a, it's such a, um, a prevalent thing. Like, using these paper talismans is such a prevalent thing in, like, a lot of Eastern... Uh, religions and cultures on the spirit paper when the family gets into sort of like this this crunchy situation with the Zhangshu, uh the gm would ask them to uh to think of a a phrase or a word or a motto that uh best exemplifies like what their family is like uh like what what brings them together as a family and they would have 10 seconds the the gm would be counting down backwards from 10 in their heads uh, as like the the players think of this word or phrase or motto, and uh, if they can think of like a good phrase, then they would write it down on a piece of paper and they would use it against the Zhangshu, uh, and they would succeed at what they were trying to do. But if they do not, if they can't come up with like a phrase or a sentence or a word, uh, then the Zhangshu would sort of take over, uh, and they would fail at trying to trying to freeze them in place. Right. So freezing them in place is important for trying to heal them or damage them and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the other thing that we have, which is neat, is are called uh, Hmong cards. And that's just basically dreams. And every morning, you don't have to do this every morning, but um, you'll get dealt out dream cards. And those dream cards are what stop your character from being as effective uh, because some of them are good. Uh, the colored ones are good, but the black and white ones, oh, they're nasty. And you have to carry them with you for the day unless you can talk to a family member about them. And when you carry them with you, they go onto your character sheet and they cover up some of your abilities. And the more and more of those that you have, the less and less work you can do. You're also given work every morning in the form of cards. And if you can't you know, meet the requirements of time that the work needs, uh, everybody has about six hours of, of work time in the morning then those cards get placed on the restaurant and turn off some of the restaurant's abilities that help you out through the game. So there's lots and lots of little mechanics in there that are kind of harkening back to board games and card games more so than traditional RPGs. But then we still have the traditional RPG mechanics as well. So with the structure of your game and everything like that, why were board game-like mechanics chosen for for the for the game well uh, i, I mean probably oh, because of, I, I, I was just gonna say <laughs> <laughs> okay. i was gonna say we're both like board gamey people 
but we also like RPGs. Um, so like, I think that we like that tactile element to our games. Uh, but also at the same time, this is something that uh, that the structure could help with with accessibility. I think that like structure is something that uh, that helps newer players or p- people who are just you know starting to get into GMing. Um, it sort of helps them frame the story a bit. Sen, what were you gonna say? Yeah, so similar things that um, you know both of us play and design board games. And the fact that there's this big kind of area of crossover where going full theater of mind or miniatures based RPGing like Dungeons and Dragons for some people is really scary uh, if they don't know what they're doing. Uh, Whereas this system, I think, has enough tactile visual cues, those sorts of things that people who are new to role playing, especially from the GM side of the table, will hopefully have something to, you know, some some hooks to hang their hats on, right? Um, and so the board gaming elements are to encourage people to play uh, something that they've never maybe played before in this style. And there is really a very good crossover potential for this game as well as for um, other role-playing games that are in the board gaming-ish area and vice versa. So from role-playing game companies to look at saying, heck, how could we get into the board and card area of the, the gaming universe? Because they're, they're, they're similar, but they're different, right? Um, one of the things we noticed in our on our Kickstarter is that there are a lot of first-time Kickstarter backers, and there are a lot of first-time role-players, uh, people who follow either of us uh, based on our past work on board games, have said, this is an RPG that I think I'll try because it seems like it's guiding me through a lot of the stuff that is so open and so sandboxy in many other systems. So uh, hopefully we've done them a service in maybe leading them to other games past ours. Um, but it's nice to be a start for somebody. Yeah, I'm noticing a a larger amount of board game RPGs mixes, and it's really interesting to see um, the uh, evolution of that. Uh, yeah, one one question about the uh, the board gaminess of the uh, the mechanics. Are there any plans to translate some of those mechanics into a more maybe online friendly format? I know all of my gaming at present obviously is done online so it would be it's difficult if there's you know a card draw mechanism or something like that oh for sure so right now we are working with uh roll for as a launch title i believe is that is that still in the works there banana yes we are uh in the works uh with roll we're going to talk it out we are planning on a thing. Uh, I, sorry, I have to be very vague because we don't have anything like completely finalized yet. Uh, but we are planning on working with Roll. Um, and I, we, we have been playing on Roll20 uh, with our mods already. So mm-hmm. it works. Um, we just want to make something that is acto the best possible experience. Um, and in our talks with Roll, things have been looking really good. So Awesome. Glad to hear it. I do have a, a quick question about 
because you're mentioning accessibility and the like, have you heard of anyone being excited to play this game with their family to explore these kinds of things, uh, these especially multi-generational aspects? Uh, you know what I have? I, I, and I don't know necessarily if it's playing the game with them or playing the game and then going to talk to them about stuff. I would love for yeah. them to play the game together as a multi-generational family. I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but you never know. I think that'd be great. But I do know for sure that several of our playtesters have been inclined after playing the game to go talk to their own families about their roots and their culture uh, or their roots and their culture. Or <laughs> however, we would say that in Texas. Roots. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, as you are currently on Kickstarter, we know Kickstarter one runs these wonderful stretch goals things. Um, you can see you've got through quite a few of them already. Um, you've still got 10 days as of recording still to go. So what other stretch goals can we look forward to? And are there going to be maybe some more um, mythological creatures added in in the future through these stretch goals or other means? So in terms of the stretch goals, uh, we do have stretch goal writers who are planning on using their own cultures, so integrating their own cultures into the, into the game. Um, so I'm excited to see what kind of creatures they're going to try to adapt. Currently, we have a, uh, in the core book, we have a few other, uh, a few other creatures that you might run into um, if you wanted to you know, use them for your own game. Um, so right now, uh, we're having this whole section that's written out about uh, uh, like it's, it's hard for me to go back and forth in Cantonese, so I apologize. Um, but right now we have this section that we're, uh, that we're writing out on Mogwai. And um, that, those are basically, uh, think of them as like demons. Um, and uh, we have a little bit about hungry ghosts um, and what they look like. Uh, what the Hungry Ghost Festival is. Uh, we have like a whole section on like, you know, different festivals that you might have uh, in your game, um, as well as uh, Zing. So uh, these are white bone demons. Um, I'm not sure if they're uh, a part of a lot of Western pop culture, but uh, they are a big part of, uh, of pop culture in, um, in Cantonese TV shows and film. Uh, so these are, uh, these are, shape-shifting skeletons that emerge out of the dark uh, and they can take on the appearance of like you know a very uh, they usually take on a, the appearance actually of a, a sweet elderly person until you get too close to them and they might offer you sweets and then they'll steal you away and feast on your flesh so that's another another demon that we're going to have <laughs> so yeah so in terms of stretch goals uh, other stretch goals we might have uh they're they're more like um uh, you know, additional cool things that we want to add to the game itself. So, you know, linen cards, uh, frameable art, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and because the game really isn't a stat-based game, there's no, like, you know, D&D &D type of block of stats that you need to know for any monster. If you want to add a monster in, you just add them in, and you tell us about, you know, how would that, that monster work in this game? Um... So again, being from uh, Malaysian Chinese descent, you know, there's definitely vampires in their mythology that are different. Um, and you, you may have seen them in like 
I believe it's in Fiend Folio. There was like the Penangolin, uh, which is very much a uh, vampire, but different in how it looks and acts than maybe the hopping vampire. So um, what if you did something like that? So I hope that people will use their own cultures. We have a user, uh, one of the backers who is trying to make one for their culture and they're like doing uh, a rakshaka, a rakshaka. I can't pronounce the word. Um, um, who is, you know, and their restaurant will be like an Indian restaurant. So we're going to see a lot of hopefully neat stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. Hopefully see a lot of neat stuff coming from other creators of other cultures. And the framework is very loose. So that will hopefully entice other people to do their own thing in there. Yeah, it sounds like you've managed to really create, even though you've got your own, you've created this wonderful uh, story for your, your actual game itself, you've managed to write it in such a way that it's easy to translate to other cultures and bring in those other mythologies and things, and then bring in their own personal experiences. And I, I think that's a really, really innovative and new way to kind of look at games rather than create that one setting that everyone has to kind of sit in and, and, and sandbox that setting. It seems like you've created so. it so you can go beyond that. So I'm looking forward to seeing it all now. Thank you. Thanks. All right. So, um, uh, Sun, I know you worked on actually one of the my uh, gaming group's go-to uh, games that we use almost every time that we meet up, whenever we can, you know, actually meet up. Um, but what other games do you uh, would you like to highlight? Of other projects, that you ha- are you guys both on? Other than Juncture, uh, so let's see. Kingdom Rush will be fulfilling early 2021, as will Mind Management. Uh, Kingdom Rush is a cooperative uh, tetronomo or polyomino game based on the multi-million downloaded app of the same name. And then Mind Management uh, was one of our our first successful Kickstarters as a publisher um, ourselves. So I'm not really involved in the publishing, but my co-designer, Jay Cormier, uh, started an imprint just to do this game. It's one of our favorite comic books of all time. And so we worked heavily with the creator, Matt Kent, to make a game specifically for his comic book, Mind Management, which is about psychic agents taking over the world. And then you are rogue psychic agents from the same organization who realize that, hey, our organization is evil. Let's stop them. And so it's a hidden movement game that's a one versus many uh, situation. And we are actually going to work on a role-playing game, hopefully, for that comic book as well. So that kind of stuff is is what I'm working on right now. I am currently working on fulfilling the orders for Battle of the Boy Bands, (laughs) which is a... Uh, it's a card game. It's not a role-playing game. But when players play the card game, they sometimes act out the different characters and they give them names and stuff that are on the cards. Uh, so that's a uh, a deck. It's not really a deck builder, but it's more like a drafting card game with Take That Elements. And it's by Cleo Yansu Davis and Vicky Ho. Uh, game in a Curry, my company, we published it. Uh, so that should be in everyone's hands by November or December. Um, And uh, we did a Kickstarter for that, and that went really well. 
Um, and I think other than that, is it possible for me to highlight someone else's project as well? Absolutely, go for it. Cool. Um, I'd also like to highlight Honey and Hot Wax, which is an anthology of erotic art games uh, that is being published by Pelgrim Press. Um, the editors are friends of mine, so the editors are Lucian Khan and uh, Sharon Biswas. But in the anthology itself, it's got like a whole bunch of different writers and uh, game designers. So check that out on Pelgrim Press. And while we're checking that out, uh, since we're already online, uh, how can listeners find you guys online? You can find me online at Senfeng Lim on Twitter. Um, on Facebook, it's probably best to find me at Meeple Syrup. Oh, sorry, it's not an at. It's just Facebook, uh, blah, 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 backslash Meeple Syrup. That is the weekly web show that I do with um, my co-hosts, Erica Buyuris and Jesse Wright. We focus on talking to industry people about the industry, but from a board game designer's perspective. Um, so that's every week on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time during the school year. So from September to July. So July, August, we're off. And you can find me at Banana Chan Games on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, but I'm most active on Twitter. And you can also find my company, Game in a Curry, uh, at Game in a Curry on Twitter and Facebook. Very cool. So yeah, we'll definitely uh, put links in our show notes to uh, Zhang Shu uh, so that our listeners can check it out. I'm really excited to uh, grab a PDF of this game and uh, uh, check it out even further. And if anyone's ever looking for Darker Days Radio, you can email us uh, at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Uh, we're at facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio. Our Twitter is at darkerdaysradio. We, of course, have our website, which is www.darker-days.org. We're on Instagram, Tumblr, on Tabletop, YouTube, Twitch, and of course, we have our super fun Discord with a link in the show notes. Sen and Banana, thank you so much for coming here on the show. Your Kickstarter is doing great, and we hope it gets an even further boost uh, towards the end of its campaign. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks a lot. Of course, to all the listeners out there, take it easy and have a good night. This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com. Thank you.